For the rest of us, would you please stand for the reading of God's word? Today's reading will come from Exodus chapter 20, verse 7, and Acts chapter 19, verses 11 through 20. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirits answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them, so that they all fled out of that house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell on them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also, many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. A number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. They counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Word of God, you may be seated. You've probably heard this statement before. Christianity is not a religion, it's a relationship. That might be false technically. Other, any definition of a religion would absolutely include Christianity. But the spirit behind it is true. That God is looking for a people, a people to have a relationship with. Not a people who want to click on a box saying, I'm a part of this, I'm part of this club. But a people who have bowed their knee before Jesus Christ on this side of the veil of tears, to make him Lord and Savior. When it comes to the Ten Commandments, it's easy for us to see them as a list of rules of do this and you'll go to heaven. But that's not what they were meant for. What they were meant for is to show us you are not doing this. You fail in each and every one of these, so therefore you need a Savior. The Ten Commandments were not given before they left Egypt. They were given after they had left Egypt. What that means is they were, not, they were not prerequisites. They were not a list of do's and don'ts to escape slavery, but they were, they were guidelines on how a free people should live and to stay free. The first commandment is that you shall have no other gods before him. The language used in here is relationship language. It is that of a marriage relationship. So yes, it's not a religion. It is relationship. No marriage will last if there are third parties, and your relationship with God will be severely strained if there are third parties. The second commandment is like the first. In fact, it starts to unpack the first, that your relationship with God is exclusive to the point to where it is not even allowed a fictitious representation of him in your life. The third commandment is also that of relationship Because the respect of God's holiness is essential to right relationship with him. 
Let me say that again. The respect for God's holiness is essential to right relationship with him. And if we do not have a respect for the holiness of God, of the majesty of God, then our relationship with him will be severely strained. How we treat his name reveals what we think of him and how we honor him or lack thereof. So what is in a name? Why are names so important in the Bible? You'll find many people who have many different names. You have some people who have their name changed. Abram becomes Abraham. Sarai becomes Sarah. Paul goes by Saul, and we wonder, why are they so important in these names? In the book of Hosea, we have the prophet who is told to name his children different names as prophecies against Israel and Judah. In America today, many of us don't even know what our names mean. We wonder, does it even matter? Now, I know mine, according to baby books, and then also things I see in gift shops, means healer. Juliet says, said, what is in a name? That which we call a rose by any other name would smell as sweet. Of course, referring to Romeo, who is a, who is a Montague, and her, Juliet, a Capulet. And she says, be him, be thou Capulet. Because she wants things to be okay, but you find out at the end of the play that names actually do mean quite a lot. There's this story about Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great, now this may have not taken place, maybe apocryphal, but it is a story associated with Alexander the Great. He was at an embankment, he was at an encampment, and he was walking around, and he sees this young man who's asleep at his post. Now to be asleep at your post when you're supposed to be guarding the encampment, instant death. But he decides to have mercy on this young man. He wakes him up, and he asks him, what's your name? And the man says, Alexander, sir. So Alexander Great says, change your conduct or change your name. Names mean something. Names mean something. When we take on ourselves the name of Christ as Christian, that means something. And what Becca read earlier in Exodus chapter 20, verse 7, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. The prayer Jesus taught his disciples was a reference to this command. We call it the Lord's Prayer. In it, we have the line, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. The name of the Lord and the name of God is a serious business. The Jews, they would have actually things in their scripture to let them know, don't say his name, say Adonai instead, which is a generic term for Lord. Because they were so worried that you might accidentally say the name of God and blaspheme. They took it so very seriously that they had little things. Now it said there clearly about Yahweh, but they want but they did not even want to they didn't even want to on on the offset chance of blaspheme be guilty of blasphemy. The name of God it meant so much to those people. It should mean so much to us. When God stopped Abraham. When God stopped Abraham from, from sacrificing his son Isaac, God had told him to take the son whom he loved, the child of promise, the child born of the Spirit, up to a hill and to sacrifice him. Abraham believes and he obeys and he goes up there. And as he's going up there, his son asks him, where's the sacrifice? And Abraham tells him, the Lord will provide. He takes him up 
to the hill. And as he is about to bring down the knife, God stops him and says, now I know, now that, now I know you fear me. And at that moment, he looks over and there's a goat caught by its horns in the thicket. And so they called that place Yahweh Jireh, or Yahweh Jireh, the Lord will provide. And thousands of years later, our God took his son, whom he was well pleased and loved, and the knife was not stayed, but he was crucified on a tree to provide for you and me salvation. His name is hallowed. Yahweh Sitkanu. The Lord, our righteousness, Jeremiah 23, verses 5 and 6. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. Let me stop right there. There's all these branches, all these children of David, and every single one failed so miserably. But God's like, I will provide for you a righteous branch. And this is his name by which he will be called the Lord, our righteousness, Yahweh Sitkanu. In Jeremiah, God pronounced judgment against Israel. We've been talking about that all throughout more our Sunday mornings with Hosea. And it's a dark book because it's talking about judgment of God. But God has also provided salvation. He gave them the promise of a righteous branch who would be Jesus Christ, who would bring restoration. It is only through the Lord Jesus the Lord sending his son that we can be righteous. Jesus Christ became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. Hallowed be his name. The proper name of God in the Old Testament, Yahweh, which is also known as a tetragrammatron because it is represented by four consonants, Y-H-W-H. The reason for this is that's not actually, that was never his name in the Hebrew language before the time of the exile, they didn't include vowels. I think that's kind of, I think that's kind of awesome because it's kind of like, if you want to know what our literature means, you have to ask us. You can't just read it on your own and decide for yourself. You're going to have to talk to us because you can't read it. We didn't include any vowels. One real quick kind of a side thing. There's this thing going around Facebook I see of like YHWH being breathing sounds. No, they just didn't include vowels. Just to let you know. People will then use that. They will then riff off of that in order to say things that are just really against what the scripture talks about. They just didn't include vowels. His name was always Yahweh. And it comes from a time when Moses was speaking to the Lord through the burning bush. And he tells, and he asks God, when I go back to them and I tell them the God of their fathers has sent me, what shall I say his name is? And he says, tell them I am that I am. And he is the only one who can say I am that I, that I am because you have to say I am because my parents were. And they were because their parents were. All the way down the lines to Adam and Eve. But God is the only one who can say I am that I am. It literally means to come into being. He is the author and perfecter of all things. Nothing exists without him. He is the uncreated creator. He is because you are not. You are not righteous. You are not moral. You are not ethical. You are not good. But because he is Yahweh, he is the one who saves, restores, and judges. The name of gods in the time of the Exodus were serious business, especially of people who were just fleeing Egypt. In fact, there is this story 
about a man who worshipped Toth, Lord of, Lord of Matt. Let me read for you his words here when he took the name of one of their gods in vain. I am a man who swore falsely by, by Toth, Lord of Matt. And he made me see darkness by day. I will declare the might to the fool and the wise, to the small and the great. Beware, Toth, Lord of Maat. Behold, he does not overlook anyone's deed. Refrain from uttering Pat, name, name falsely. Lo, he utters it falsely, falsely, lo, he falls. That was a God who had no power whatsoever, and God just proved it. Every one of the plagues on Egypt was in the face of their pagan gods. When God turns the Nile, just one example, when God turns the Nile into blood, they believed a God lived in the Nile. It was like God was stabbing that God to death as the blood flowed as water. God had shown that their gods were nothing. So how much more holy and righteous and careful should we be with the name of God? Now, I label today's message blasphemy. Um, I had other names for it. In fact, my word file, I think, is um, get your name out of his mouth, out of your mouth. Yeah, get your name out of his mouth, out of your, out of your mouth. Sorry, I keep saying that wrong. Blasphemy is a good one. It's one of the ones that's very dramatic. What it, um, the English word blasphemy, basically disrespecting um, divine, what is divine. But really the word is that we have in our scripture is you shall not take the, Lord of your, the, the name of the Lord your God in vain. How do we break this commandment? Let's look at the word vain for a second. It's one of my slides there, if you can pull that up. I don't normally do this. I just tell you what the word is and what it means. But I just wanted you to see it for yourself. Sav, in the sense of desolating, evil, as destructive, literally ruin, or morally, especially guile. Figuratively, idolatry, as false, subjective, useless, as deceptive, objective, also adverbally in vain, false, lie, lying, vain, vanity. I bring all of that to you because the idea of taking the Lord's name in vain is much more than saying God's name out of context or as a swear word. It's anything we do to bring God's name lower. We often do this by trying to make our name higher. It's anything that we would do to bring God's name lower. We do this through a multiplicity of ways. One, when we use the name of God like a magic spell. The scripture in the body of my message today will be going over that. Second one is to swear falsely. This is more of an umbrella term. Of course, we are, we, um, it is when we swear to God and we fail to do what we say. But it's any kind of swearing by God, um, according to Jesus Christ in Matthew chapter 5, verse 34. Also, it is hypocrisy. First, um, Titus chapter 1, verse 16, they profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good works. I have a slide on here about ways we commit blasphemy, ways we take the Lord lord's name in vain the way we speak when we use god's name as a pejorative there is one thing I, I try not to be a busybody or the hall monitor on what people say but the one thing that grates on my nerves is when people use god's name out, out use god's name in vain they just say you know jesus god of course we have this we have like so many euphemisms for blasphemy that you almost have to be an English major to even know. Like I didn't even know, I didn't know cheese whiz 
was like a euphemism for Jesus Christ. I was like, okay, why, why do we have so many? We have so many ways we, we do this in, in what we say, of course. The second one right here, I've got the magician's wand. When we use the name of Jesus, like it's a magic spell. Talk about that more. We blaspheme the name of Jesus when we try to bring him down, as in, Jesus is my homeboy. It's a lack of respect for the holiness of God. Unfortunately, in the 90s, because we wanted Jesus to be cool, which is stupid. You know, something, I remember one time, me and my friend, we were, we were trapped out in this muddy area. The rain was coming down, and his dad came to get us, and he was like an angel. Now, he was kind of dressed kind of dork, like a dork. I couldn't care less. I mean, I would have, like, kissed his feet because we were, I, we, we thought we were going to die. We, of course, we were, we were just overdramatic. Um, Jesus is relevant because he saves. Because he is, his name is above every name. We devalue the name of God when we try to bring it down to some pulp culture nonsense. Here we have another aspect in church of blasphemy is when we try to make Jesus into some stupid pop culture thing. I don't know if you can see this or not, but this is Iron Man being crucified at a church during Easter. That's blasphemy. It does not honor God. And sometimes we think, oh, well, we got we to gotta do these things in order to reach the next generation. No, we don't reach the generation. When we do stuff like that, Jesus means no more to them when they get older than Iron Man does. And we've lost a generation with this nonsense because we continue blaspheme in our churches. Here's another one. That's Jimmy Swagger right here during his uh, first apology. It's our hypocritical nature. I say I'm a Christian. I say I'm repenting, but I'm not really repenting because my behavior doesn't change. I say his first repentance because he goes back to do the same exact thing he did before, which made him a household name. Now, I don't know if his repentance is genuine today, but it certainly wasn't then. How do I know? Because he did it again. Repentance, I stop what I'm doing. I turn away from it. It doesn't matter how much tears and snot come out. If you're still doing what you're doing, that's not repentance. It is blasphemy because you are taking on yourself the name of Jesus Christ and living in a way that denies him. Photo not available. Um, this is where we put the name of Jesus Christ on detestable things, trying to make them holy. Um, the one thing I was going to use was, uh, it's called pole dancing for Jesus. And it's absolutely everything you are thinking. And I think I gagged this morning just even seeing like little advertisements for it. So I was like, I'm not putting it up there. That's another way because anything we do, anything we do in thoughts, words, and actions that devalue and disrespects the name of our God is breaking this third commandment. And for those of us as believers, this puts onto us bondage because it puts for us a barrier in our relationship with Jesus Christ. And God is not like many of us who will just let things slide. He wants to deal with this today. So as we go through the scripture in Acts chapter 19, we have these seven sons, actually many others, who are blaspheming the name of Jesus by using it as a magic spell. They see the power of God. One, they see the power of God. Two, they desire that power. But three, they don't truly know the name of Jesus. Acts chapter 19, verses 11 through 20. Let's get into this. They saw the power of God, verses 11 through 13. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. They saw miracles. 
Now, these are extraordinary. In some of your translations, these are uncommon miracles by the hand, hands of Paul. Now, what I'm about to say is I'm not trying to throw cold water on your enthusiasm to see miracles. Well, I am if they're your God and you're not seeking the God of miracles. But I don't want to pour cold water on an excitement to see the miracles of God. But I want you to take note that these are extraordinary miracles. This is not everyday Christianity. Unfortunately, there are those who say it is, and then they try to sell you prayer mats. This is extraordinary. This doesn't happen every day. This, does not, this was not the norm. So that even the handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched the skin, that touched his skin, were carried away to the sick. Their diseases left them, and evil spirits came out of them. These are extraordinary miracles. As a race, we are fascinated by miracles. In general, despite what anybody might say, people want to believe in miracles. Now, do they want to believe in the God of the miracles? Not so much, but they want to believe in miracles. Now, in Ephesus, there were miracles. It's like an overflow of miracles, even to the point where it just Paul touches something, and then there's miracles. This doesn't happen often. Despite what somebody may want to try to sell you, this does not happen often. It was not the experience of the average Christian during the book of Acts. What happens in Ephesus, people are seeing miracles, but not wanting the God of the miracles. This has happened before and will happen many times after this. This is the same sin of Simon the sorcerer who sees the power that he believes is the apostles. What he doesn't understand is the power of God who wants a relationship with him and he wants to buy it from them. I guess folks in Ephesus were a bit cheaper than Simon the sorcerer because they did not want to buy it. They just took Paul's sweaty rags. Um, the apron it's talking about was a neckerchief that, that caught the sweat of the day. So they just took his smelly rags and wiped them on people and they were healed. So I guess they were a bit cheaper than Simon the sorcerer. Their miracles, these miracles, though, were promised by Christ to follow those who believed. They were a validation of the message that they would be preaching, but the miracles were not the source of faith. They pointed towards the source of faith, the one who worked the miracles, Jesus Christ. Faith in miracles will damn you to hell as sure as faith in other gods. This event eventually will be about a people who go from faith in miracles to faith in the source of all miracles. In verse 12, we have a bit of relic worship. Last week, I mentioned how the best of things can become an idol, Gideon's ephod and the bronze serpent. Here we have something very real that God was doing. People were being delivered by stuff that touched Paul's skin, but, there, but it was being used, it was being abused, and God would set a course correction by allowing what happens next. In verse 13, it talks about then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists. This is really interesting because this is kind of a microcosm in time that you had. You had the Roman government who was uniting most of the world. Every road, every road led to Rome. What this resulted in is you had an increasingly polytheistic society. You had, people, you had people incorporating gods from all of these areas. In fact, in Athens, they were extremely religious. They had all of these idols. And what you had, as people were continually looking after the supernatural, is demons were possessing many, many people. And unfortunately, people thought, what a great business opportunity. I will go around and I will exercise these demons out of people. These were the itinerant, itinerant Jewish exorcists. They're actually mentioned by Flavius Josephus 
in his antiquities of the Jewish people. I'm going to read for you his experience with one. For I have seen a certain man of my own country whose name was Eleazar, releasing people that were demonically in the presence of Vaspian and his sons and his captains and the whole multitude of his soldiers. The manner of the cure was this. He put a ring that had the root of one of the sorts of herbs mentioned by Solomon to the nostrils of the demoniac, after which he drew out the demon through his nostrils and the man fell down immediately. He adjourned him to return unto him no more, making still mention of Solomon and reciting the incantations which he, Solomon, composed. And when Eleazar would persuade and demonstrate to the spectators that he had such a power, he set a little way off a cup or basin of full of water and commanded the demon as he went out of the man to overturn it and thereby, thereby to let the spectators know that he had left the man. And when this was done, the skill and wisdom of Solomon was shown very manifestly for which reasons it is, it is that all men may know the vastness of Solomon's abilities and how he was beloved of God and the extraordinary virtues of every kind with which the king was endowed and may be unknown to any people under the sun. For, the re for this reason, I say, it is that we have proceeded to speak so largely of these matters. Hopefully he's caught in there. He actually witnessed one of these itinerant Jewish exorcists bring demons out of people by using the herbs that Solomon spoke of. Now, this goes to Jewish mythology and occult practices of Solomon, the wisdom of Solomon. Um, I'm not going to get too far into this, but there's, there is an occult practice even today based on this as well. Um, the idea that Solomon had control over demons. Actually, in, in, in some of the uh, Muslim holy books, We'll mention him making the temple using the labor of jinn, as in genies, like, never had a friend like me. Um, it's all nonsense, non-biblical, completely. It's, it's magical, it's pagan. But it made its way into, into Jewish thinking. And instead of Solomon, they were starting to invoke the name of Jesus in their incantations as a spell. This devalues God. It devalues his name because his name isn't magic. It's power. And it's not power as in I have a superpower, my eyes are going to do laser beams. It's power as in relationship power. It is the same power a soldier would have in any providence of Rome. And when he told somebody in the name of Caesar, I'm taking your stuff. You see, just one person couldn't say that to somebody else. They're like, whatever, I'm going to tell the magistrate you're trying to take my property. But if the magistrate goes over to you and he tells you, we're going to use your house as a basis for, for, the, for the command, and I'm telling you this in Caesar's name, you know that that guy has a special relationship to Caesar. He's been commissioned by Caesar to be a magistrate, to be a centurion, to be a soldier. You know that he has an authority from Caesar. So when he speaks in the name of Caesar, it carries weight because it's by the will of Caesar. And they didn't even have a book like we do that tells us the will of God and how to pray in the will of God, how to pray in the name of Christ. They were invoking the name of Jesus. When they see Paul casting out demons and how effective he is, they want that, but they don't want the Jesus that comes with it. They use the name of Jesus like a spell. This is selfish and magical thinking. Unfortunately, 
In so many churches around the world this morning, this is how the name of Jesus is used. In so many people's prayer, this is how the name of Jesus is used. When we tag at the end of our sentence in prayer in the name of Jesus, and we don't mean anything by that, we're not thinking of in the power, in the presence, in the authority of Christ. It's just something I say so my prayer has more validity or more oomph to it so that God has to do what I ask. We are doing the same exact thing. We'll say, well, Jesus said, if you ask anything in my name, I will do it. Of course, we divorce that from everything that came before and after that, that by praying in his name is in relationship with him, not as magic words. We don't want to think about the next verse that says, if you love me, you will keep my commands. A person who thinks that the name of Jesus is just a magical spell that they can use to get what they want or to exercise the Lord's power on the day of judgment will find the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 23 to be true. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. We better watch when we think we have God over a barrel. We read the words, anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And we think that is just simply formulaic. It's relationship, not religion. Religion is, I have an incantation. Now God has to do what I ask. That is, that is the perverse occult thinking that has existed since almost time immemorial. This idea that if I knew God's true name, I have power over him. No, as I know and honor his true name, I have a relationship with him. And you understand the difference, right? That if I'm to pray in the name of Christ, it has to be in relationship. It has to be with my heart, not with my mouth. Let me continue reading. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? Then I will declare to him, to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Chasing miracles is not the same thing as chasing Jesus. These people were chasing miracles, believed in miracles, tried to perform miracles. All they accomplished was adding blasphemy to the list of sins. Attempt at devaluing the name of Christ by using it as a spell. They saw the power of God. They desired that power. And like Adam, they wanted the power of God, but without relationship with God. Verse 14, we have the introduction of the seven sons of Sceva. They are then identified in there. They are the sons of a high priest. And as I said before, you had people going around trying to be exorcists. These seven guys were acting like Simon the sorcerer before them and trying to play act at the power of God. That is what they desired. They desired the power of God without relationship with him. In verse 15, we get to the meat of the story. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognized, but who are you? Who are you? How do you answer that? You are not all the externalities about you. You are not your job. You are not your family relationship. You are not your family history. You are not, you are not the accumulation of everything you've done in your life. If you are in Christ, you are son and daughter of the Most High. The demon doesn't see that with the seven sons of Siva, and that's the further tragedy. He doesn't see whose they are, let alone to see who they are. 
They don't have about them the protection of the Holy Spirit because they are not God. They are not the younger brother of Jesus Christ. But you, who are you? You are the son and daughter of the living God if you are in Christ. You are the younger brother or sister of Christ, adopted by God the Father. You are the resting place of the Holy Spirit. Unfortunately, these seven were not. When demons don't know who you are, what your name is, that is trouble. For they know many things about God, and if they don't know you associated with God, that's an issue. There are many in churches who play the part. They say all the right words, go to the right things, participate in every ceremony or every religious type of thing. You, you even have people like these seven who invoke the name of Jesus and have a claim to authority and power of the Most High. And at the end of their life, he'll say to them, you workers of iniquity, I never knew you. And I think that is the biggest tragedy in church life is that we can have people dedicated here at, here at Faith Church. Go throughout our children's ministry, our youth group, go to camp, have amazing experiences at camp, have testimonies every single week who can then grow up, get a job, maybe even go into ministry, come back to this church, lead this church, and they can live a moral life all of their life, come to the very end of their life, and God says to them, you worker of iniquity, I never knew you. You can have an outward appearance of godliness, but not know Christ. There is a short story by Washington Irving called The Devil and Tom Walker. This short story bothered me in high school in English lit. I think it was English lit, or maybe it was American lit. Um, American lit, because he's American. So anyway, um, Washington Irving's The Devil and Tom Walker um, always bothered me, because Tom Walker is a guy who uh, makes a deal with the devil, and he tries to cheat the devil. He tries to cheat the devil by going to church. And you knew that he, it said in the book, it said in the novel, that you knew that old Tom there had a bad week because he'd be screaming his like repentance and crying at the altar every week. And at the end of the short story, the devil comes and the devil gets his due. He walks away with Tom Walker. And I was like, that's not fair. Didn't Tom repent? I remember the last line of the book where the same stuff he did to get himself into his deal with the devil, he was still doing Repentance without change isn't repentance. It's just words. Repentance without a heart change is not real repentance. And if you say you have a new relationship with Jesus, but if you do not have a new relationship with sin, you blaspheme his name. Beware preachers who only preach fluffy messages, devote of any call to repentance. They do not have your best in mind. They would rather you face the wrath of God than to face your wrath. You don't want to come to the end and find out that you are on the wrong side of the sheep and the goats And when you say, Lord, Lord. There's a real tragedy here. There's a real tragedy here for these seven. And it's not just the comical thing of where the, where the demon-possessed man beats them up, strips them naked, and runs them out on a rail. It is kind of funny. That's not the tragedy. In fact, maybe it actually, that might actually be God reaching out to them to tell them, wake up, you're not where you are. You're not where you think you are. You think you're mighty, you think you're powerful. You don't have relationship. And that was the sad thing. That's the real tragedy here. These seven do not have relationship with Jesus. They have blasphemed his name by using it as a spell. We as readers see through God's sight and we know that they truly have nothing 
because Jesus' name isn't a magic word. Their problem wasn't that they didn't have the right formula for their spell. I actually, I, I've heard preachers say, okay, this tells us then that if we're going to cast out demons, we just have to say in Jesus' name, not by Jesus whom Paul preached. Totally missing the whole point of it. They were trying to use Christ's name as a magic spell. Don't use it as a magic spell. Understand power is, power is in the relationship with Jesus Christ. The problem is that the name of the Lord isn't magic word at all. In fact, I remember one time, because I used to pray, and I would, I would end the prayer, in, in the name of the Lord, amen. And someone's like, I want to I challenge you to say in the name of Jesus. And I'm like, well, it's not the specific utterance. In fact, you know something? Nobody in Jesus' time and generations afterward used the name Jesus. And actually, the letter J, uh, this is whatever, the letter J was invented in the 16th century. Nobody used the letter J really before that. They pronounced Jesus' name Aesis, or if you were Hebrew, is Yeshua. It's not the utterance, it's the relationship. It is the connection to the name. When we talk about Christ's name, about his name, it is much more than simply words that we say. It is a name as in the name he makes for himself. It is his entirety. In the 23rd Psalm, he leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. In the Tower of Babel, they wanted to make a name for themselves. It's the reputation of Jesus. It is why he has the name that is above every name, that no matter how we pronounce his name as, every knee should bow to him and confess him as Lord. And this was their problem. They did not understand the name of Jesus, even though they used the name of Jesus. Verses 17 through 20. Believe it or not, this story has a very good ending to it. Not for those seven, at least not for this time. It's not a very good ending. But we see by, we, by the time we get to verse 20, real repentance. Real repentance to the point to where the people who made idols in Ephesus, they start a riot later on. Someone can say they have a new relationship with Jesus, but if they do not have a new relationship with sin, then nothing has really taken place. God uses this event to cause real faith and real repentance. Verses 17 here. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks. And fear fell upon them, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. And many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it, and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. I love the reversal here. The itinerant ex um, exorcists use the name of God as in their incantations as a spell. They, they, they invoke the name of Christ, but by the end, the people extol the name of Christ. Best of all, the reversal of what these folks did, they uh, the itinerant exorcists were invoking the name of Jesus, and now the name of the Lord was extolled. Extolled means praised, worship. It's in relationship with Christ. They didn't see it any longer as a magic spell. See, that's what they, that's, that would have been the ancient mindset, is to use this as a way of gaining power and making God do what you want. 
But now they saw all of our magic stuff, it's trash. It can do nothing. We now have a relationship with Christ and it's so much more than what we have. When we think of magic in the scriptures, we have this image in our head of a guy wearing a pointy hat and a long robe. That's not what magic was. Magic in, in, in the Old Testament largely was necromancy speaking to the dead. And somehow you still have churches in which people try to speak to the dead. I don't know how that happens when you have such clear statements in Scripture against it. In the New Testament, you have the word pharmakeia, which was where we get the word pharmaceuticals from. The idea was to get high, to get an experience with the divine powers. And we still have people doing that today. We sometimes when we talk about magic, we focus on fantasies and stuff like that as opposed to something that's actually real that people are actually struggling with and doing. It's trying to use religion to get God to love you. No, God loves you. Now live free. Now accept him. Believe on his name and you will be saved. He is the name that is above every name. Philippians chapter 2, verses 19 through 11. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. How serious is you know how deep this goes? Jesus says that if you love father or mother, son or daughter, wife, even your own life, you are not worthy of me. It is blasphemy to love even our family relations more than him. Because he is better. He makes us love others better. How dare we make less of his name? Use it like a spell to get what we want instead of aligning ourselves with his will. And then here's the crazy thing, that when we are aligning ourselves with his will, we desire his will. And we pray his will out of our own hearts. We pray it because he's changed our hearts. And now our greatest desire is not a Lamborghini. It's that Jesus Christ might be glorified on this earth. John the apostle, when he was in Revelation, when he started having his revelation, he saw a scroll, and on it was seals, and nobody was worthy to open those seals, so he wept bitterly because his passion was for the glory of God. That's what happens when the fruit of the Spirit take hold. All of a sudden, when I pray in his name, I'm praying his will. How passionately do you pray for salvation of the people around you, especially your enemies? Maybe his will hasn't taken hold. And our prayer then is, God, make your will my will so that when I pray in your name, it truly is according to your will and according to your authority and according to your power. There is a bondage to blasphemy. I said before, for the believer, the commands of God are their joy. 1 John 5, 3, for this is love of God, that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. Before I knew Christ, his commandments were burdensome. I couldn't do it. I bet all of you feel the same way. Even as a believer, I still sin. But now to take his name, to, to exalt his name is my greatest joy. And to take his name in vain is my sorrow. His commands are not burdensome. They're the desire of my heart. It is not what we see here with the itinerant Jewish exorcists. 
But we see here, though, with the other people, before they were, they were imprisoned to pagan thinking, including these Jews here, including Christians who believed that, that when they were praying in the name of Jesus and they didn't get what they wanted, that it meant that Jesus didn't love them enough. That's bondage. And I pray, my, my, my purpose is to free you from such bondage. Or maybe you think you're not at the right level of faith. That's why God did not give you the right thing. But this is not a video game. Our God loves us. And to pray in his name is not simply saying the words. It is to extol the name of the Lord and then burn the things that are not of his in our life so we can worship him in spirit and in truth. One day I was watching Oprah. Don't judge me. I've told you why before. And on Oprah, there was a literal witch. She was a Wiccan practitioner, and she was shilling a book about practical magic. And she had a spell in there for a parking spot. She had a spell in there for getting the right job, the right spouse, whatever have you, to get a good meal at the restaurant. And she had these different practical magic things. And then I was uh, watching, I don't know what program it was, I believe it was on TBN. And there was a pastor on there peddling his book of practical prayers that God listens to. And if you just say these words, God has to do these things because you will declare them and that will put out into the ether that God has to do something. And it was for a good parking spot, a job, the right spouse, a good table at the diner. There's no difference between those two because we are not engaging with the heart of God. We are not engaging with relationship with Christ. Everything comes down to relationship with Jesus. That is the great revelation of the Old Testament with the New Testament. We talked about this in Sunday school this morning with Hosea. What does God desire? Steadfast love from us. We read the Old Testament, we're like, okay, all these sacrifices, all these things, it's about these people trying to get the land for themselves. And then we come to the New Testament to Hebrews chapter 11, and we find out Abraham was not looking for a physical city, but he was looking for the one whose author and perfecter and founder and architect was the Lord. It's not religion, it's relationship. Everything is relationship. Everything is relationship. There is nothing in our faith that is you do these things and God has to do this, but it is relationship with him and is my great desire and love I do not give to get, even though that may absolutely happen with the way God has structured the world. But just giving is blessing. Amen. Just loving is blessing. Just showing kindness is blessing. Whether or not the other person reciprocates it. I have had people spit my kindness back into my faith, and I still praise God over it. How do you stop from breaking this commandment? God says that he will not hold you blameless if you, if, you, if you blaspheme his name. This is a heartbeat of God behind this. Do you hear it? Extol his name. Praise his name. Do the opposite of this. Praise him in all circumstances, in every way, shape, and form. Praise God. Worship God. Thank, in thanksgiving, present your request to God. Not as a hashtag at the end of a prayer, hashtag in Jesus' name. If you say it, mean it with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your strength, and with all of your spirit. Live in freedom of the relationship instead of the slavery of religion. Worship team, would you come up at this point?
as we begin to end our time this morning, I want to bring this around to what Christ does for us. All of us, in some way, if we were to be honest, we know we've taken the God's name in vain. We know that he won't hold them guiltless who have done so. So how then do we stand before God guiltless? It's because Jesus Christ on the cross took your sin and my sin as a blasphemer and suffered the wrath of God even though he never spoke a word of blasphemy in his whole life. He never, he never treated God in any way that would devalue him but on the cross, he was punished in your and mine place. And that is how we stand before God guiltless. It is what the New Testament writers said, that we are the righteousness of Christ. And that we can stand with our heads held high because we are the righteousness and guiltlessness of Christ. He has done this great thing for us. The power of God is a wonderful thing. We should desire the power of God, but in relationship with God, because we know his name. We know it better than the sons of Sceva. We seek the healer, not the healing. We seek the deliverer, not the deliverance. We seek relationship, not religion. So my challenge for you today, when you pray, if you pray in his name and pray in his name, mean it. Mean it. When you ask somebody, when somebody says God's name in vain, you call them on it, you know what they'll say? I didn't mean anything by it. And that'll be my thing. That's the problem. You didn't mean anything by it. It's a name that is above every name. That at the name, the mountains tremble. The sea will go this far and no further. And you meant nothing by it. So if you pray in his name and please pray in his name, mean it. Oftentimes when you hear me pray, I'll say in the power, in the presence, in the authority of Christ. And in Jesus' name do I pray. Because even for me, it's easy for me just to take it at the end of a sentence and therefore commit a sin that drove Christ to the cross. See, that's our thing as a believers. is we don't sin and then think God is going to tire of me and throw me away. We sin and we say, Oh, my dear Jesus, what have I done? The nails that were driven into my Lord's hands were driven by my sin. He holds me guiltless because he held Jesus as guilty. And now I live in freedom as I extol his name, not as a mystical enchantment, but true power that comes from relationship. That is true power. It is something all the cults in the world aspire to but cannot understand. They play at powers. They play at incantations to get the rain to fall or what have you. But they could not possibly understand until they are in Christ that the best thing is relationship with him. So much better than all the things the world has to offer. And us as believers, we understand that power. We should live in that power and live in the freedom of not saying his name in vain, but say in his name in purpose and in power and in relationship with Christ. Would you please stand with me as we sing our final song? We will end with a benediction. May God bless you this week.